0: Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral
1: science to life. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore the aspects of behavioral science that will improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. In today's episode, we return to a guest we
0: originally met back in episode 302, just about a year ago, Mr. Houlihan. And because he's done some cool work in the meantime, we wanted to catch up with him.
1: Yeah, and on... Well, fortunately, he didn't turn us down. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> or, or unfortunately for our listeners, yeah, maybe yeah. as, as, as they have to listen to us more. But anyway, no, Jonathan Malazic teaches first year writing at Southern Methodist University and creative nonfiction at the University of Texas at Dallas. He's a philosopher and scholar and cares a lot about something we do every week, science communication.
1: John's latest works, or at least the ones that we wanted to talk to him about, centered on two important topics in our world today. Now the first one is what Kurt just mentioned, communication. And the second one is a concept called knowingness. Uh the first is near and dear to our hearts,
0: Tim, because we because communication is what we do here at Behavior Groove's Global
1: Headquarters. Did you say global headquarters?
0: Uh, Okay. It's what we do here at Behavior Grooves, and more specifically, it's science communication um, at the multitude of global headquarters that we have in Minneapolis and Charlotte, North Carolina now. Um, No. So we communicate with people who want to know more about how to apply behavioral science to their work life as well as their home life. And John's thesis about communication focuses on the importance of writing for an audience. And we do this with you in mind, a listener who
1: is curious and interested in using science to improve their lives. The other part of our discussion with John is about knowingness. Now, now this term, knowingness, was introduced by a writer and philosopher, Jonathan Lear, who teaches at the University of Chicago. Lear wrote about this concept in his 1998 book, open-minded and it's about how we feel when we hear something new and we go oh yeah i already know that john's latest essay in psyche magazine explores this concept really well and we wanted to chat with him about it
0: yeah, I already knew that. Um, yeah. That was all <laughs> of course. Uh, I, I knew about <laughs> Jonathan Lear's work you know, all but before this. But um, <laughs> yeah, with knowingness is a little bias, a little misconception. And that's not good for a population that consumes world events in headlines rather than paragraphs. And we really enjoyed talking about the implications of this phenomenon with John. And we think, we hope, maybe we know. That you'll enjoy this too. So, with that, Groovers,
1: we hope you'll sit back with a, a little summer pour of your favorite communication hacks and enjoy our conversation with Jonathan Malesic. John Malesic, welcome back to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to be here. It is so much fun to to have you in the closet still <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: Tim, all right, Tim. you might have to explain that
1: before oh. before you we we go on. I'm sorry that just our listeners are going, what? I think I'm not going to try to explain why John is in a closet. we should let John explain that.
0: Yeah,
2: I this is the quietest and, (laughs) uh, you know, best acoustically best best place in the house. Um, I started recording podcasts in my clothes closet one afternoon when uh, we were having siding being put on our house. It was just noise everywhere. Um, And I had seen a veteran podcaster, uh, interview me from her closet. And so I thought, okay, well, if she
0: can do it, then I can too.
1: You can too. Was that Katie
0: Milkman by chance? No. No. Okay. Katie, Katie did her her, her recordings in the closet as well. So, (laughs) all right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We slowed this down. We didn't even get to our very first, uh, very first speed round question. So Mr. Hulhan,
1: take it back it was about a year ago actually a little more than a year ago that we we first talked and we were talking about your your um, end of burnout book and we asked a question about whether ice cream and beer was together was a good idea and you, you pretty much said that that malty goodness combined with cream was was pretty perfect my question for you today is what's the best beer to combine with ice cream? Russian stout or a, a nice light lager?
2: Oh, definitely uh, Russian imperial stout is <laughs> ideal. Or a um, any kind of like, you know, coffee porter, uh, chocolate porter, um, <laughs> you know, milk stout, you know, anything that's got like a lot of malt and it usually has to have a pretty high alcohol to kind of
1: you know <laughs> well really i mean
2: just for the taste like just to like yeah. so that it can
0: you know kind of stand up to to the, the, the fat
2: and the sugar in the ice cream yeah
0: you know, I, I said that I was going to try this after that uh, we, we talked last time, and I, I still have not. So I am oh going to make this. It's Memorial. We're recording this right before Memorial Day weekend. And so I am going to try this on Memorial Day Should weekend. Should we take I a break know, so you I, can go
1: and get I could probably I know, go down and stairs and, and get that. And we could just be, you know,
0: <laughs> that would be an interesting interview. All right. Um, without yeah. that, we're going to go on to the second question. Okay. All right. Uh, John, would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite hockey star or musician?
2: Oh, boy. Probably musician. (laughs) uh, Simply because... You know, my favorite musicians are are probably better conversationalists than <laughs> my favorite hockey stars. <laughs> Why would now? Uh, All right. Yeah, you know, I mean, who, the, who, you know, hockey player hockey players are not you know they're not they're not paid for their for their words. Uh, you know, they're they're men of action.
0: <laughs> that is that is very well true. Said. So, do you have well a, a do you have a favorite hockey team?
2: Uh, and. Yes, yeah. I am a lifelong fan
0: of the Buffalo Sabers. Okay, yeah. Okay, you, you and uh, the Minnesota Wild are doing about the same, then. And uh, <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> okay.
1: Okay. Well, we won't. We won't dive too deep into that. Uh, so this is this last uh, speed run question is about a recent article that you wrote. It called it it was in psyche magazine uh our big problem is not misinformation it's knowingness it's a, it's a terrific article and we'll have a link to it in the show notes but my question is is knowingness simply a way to manage the flood of information in our world today i think so uh and yeah i mean i should explain what i
2: mean by knowingness <laughs> yeah uh, we we should probably go there I it's yeah. it's a i, I think that it, we're all very familiar with it and we all probably practice it uh, almost daily. It's a term that uh, I don't know if he was if he, he coined it exactly, but it's a term that I get from the philosopher and psychoanalyst Jonathan Lear, who teaches at the University of Chicago and has written many brilliant books. And Lear wrote this essay in 1998 or so on this this phenomenon that he called knowingness. And it's this, it's this, it's a a posture that you take toward knowledge where you act as if you already know any, any question that is, you know, that could possibly come up where you're, you're so afraid of seeming not to know that you sort of pretend to know a lot of things that you don't. And you often kind of pretend that you've already known, you know, you've <laughs> always already known and that everyone has already known. So, I mean, everybody knows, you know, such and such when right. when in fact they don't. And it's just a, yeah, I, yeah, I think that there's just so much that we might know in our world. And we have this illusion that, you know, by virtue of having the entire internet at our fingertips, well, we Surely, you know, well, of course we know everything that's on there, but of course we don't. And we, right. we have this anxiety right. over our knowledge that I think we deal with by seeming to know things that we don't.
1: So, John, is is this related to what we commonly think of as like a confirmation bias kind of thing? Is it like, oh, this is familiar, so of course I must know it?
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think that it's it's... A lot of the ailments surrounding knowledge in our society, I think, often boil down to knowingness. So, yeah, confirmation bias is, you know, considered a a huge societal problem, or echo chambers, Mm -hmm. or misinformation, or, you know, any of these others, or the, the kind of polarization of our information networks. And I think the deep Beneath all of those is uh, a vein of knowingness where we kind of act as if any question of fact has already been settled mm. uh, by, you know, the people on our team often. Uh, oh, well, you know, that's already known. We don't have to look into that. Um, the,
1: the, you're th- are you thinking specifically like partisan related issues? In, right. In often. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, though it, it it's often you know for one thing knowing this absolutely afflicts all corners of uh, of our politics uh, and I think that it's it's a real problem when it it starts afflicting people whose job is to inform us mm. uh, so you know physicians, Uh, Teachers and professors and researchers and, I dare say, not you guys, but (laughs) podcast
1: hosts. (laughs) Thank goodness, not us. Occasionally, (laughs) occasionally,
2: (laughs) podcast hosts seem to claim to know more than they probably do
0: <laughs> well <laughs> well we don't know
1: anything so that's, uh, that's, that's one of those it's, things that, i guess yeah. we can claim that but that's it's about easy for it. us to have a beginner's mindset because we are beginners so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so
0: john i, I want to there's a quote in from the article that i i really love and, and it's this it, it's um quote the stance of already knowing functions as a defense if you already know you do not need to find out knowingness then is a false claim to knowledge that makes it impossible to learn anything new. Knowingness is why present day culture wars are so boring. No one is trying to find out anything. There's no common agreement about the facts. And yet everyone acts as if it all matters of, as if all matters of fact are already settled. I, I, I love that because it com- covers a com- couple of different things. One is it's a defense, right? It, it acts as this element to kind of protect us. So I don't have to, uh, look at my internal i uh, belief system and and if that is then you know found at fault i might have you know have to address that which i think is great but it also is this i what i thought was really fascinating was this idea that it makes it impossible to learn anything new and so can you expand on that a little bit and 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 just kind of talk through some of some of that and 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 why that is
2: yeah i mean i'll give you an example that i i mentioned in the article and you know i think knowingness is particularly a problem for you know people who've been rewarded throughout mm. their lives for having the right answer so you know top students would be a good example and you know i mean like that was me uh, as as a high school and college student, I, I thought I knew everything. And I thought, oh, of course, you know, we, we already know that. That question's already settled. But I'll give you, I mean, you know, my example is that uh, a few years ago, and uh, it was probably a decade ago, I was sitting at a coffee shop near an elite liberal arts college, and it must have been around you know, course selection time. The students are trying to figure out what classes to take in the fall. And I remember hearing these two students and one said just with this distressed voice, you know, I can't take a class in Russian history. I don't know any Russian history. Wow. (laughs) And, you know, I think that that's pretty widespread. You know, it's like, well, of course you don't know. You haven't taken
1: a class (laughs) in it.
2: Um, Captain Obvious. (laughs) And the student... May have had legitimate concerns about their grade. They're like, oh my gosh, am I going to be able to do well in this class? Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's a signal that educators put too much emphasis on already knowing the right answer and rewarding those students who maybe have a little bit more of a background in the subject and not pushing quite enough. To treat the class as an opportunity for discovery and
0: growth and all of that. Yeah, I, I, it, it's fascinating when you think about that because there's a, there's a corollary in in business as well. Is you know, do we attempt something, um, or do you reward people for trying something, or do you only go about it once you know with a certain sense of certainty that we're going to be able to do it, and 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 think that. It decreases the amount of creativity, the amount of, uh, you know, new ideas that get floated and new new ways of trying to do business. I think it just, it, it covers a, a whole bunch of different pieces of that. Yeah. An interesting piece that I was thinking about after reading this article is what is the role of the internet or social media that has on this, this idea that, all right, because I think part of this is also this idea of confirming, as as Tim mentioned before, the confirmation bias that I have a belief. And and in the past, that belief, I might be surrounded by, you know, uh, I, I don't know anybody else that has that belief. And so I might start questioning that. There's some, you know, the, everybody else is saying all these other things. But the internet now, I can go out there and if I believe the earth is flat, you know, I'm not the crazy guy in the middle of the town. There's tens of thousands of other people out there that, that say the the world is flat. And so it confirms my belief and I don't have to, so I know this, right. I know it's right. And we know it. Um, is, is that a part that plays into this or is that just a happy go lucky, you know, by chance of the times we're in? So,
2: yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think that the, the other, yeah, the thing that the internet, reveals to us, like you say, is that there are all these people out there, and surely there are people who know the thing that you want to know, and they legitimately know it. I mean, think about how you're almost forbidden uh, online from saying, like, holy cow, I just learned this amazing thing. You know, you'll sometimes <laughs> see, I mean I, I mean, I I see people do this, and um, they'll say, like, oh, I was today years old yeah. that I learned... Yeah you know, yeah. whatever. And, you know, I read that and like, oh, come on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know that? <laughs> like, and I, I shouldn't do that. In fact, there's a really good XKCD comic that I, I, I used to have, when I was teaching college full time, I, I had it either, I don't know, taped up to my desk or, or something like that just as a reminder of what my job was. And the comic was something like, you know, one of the stick figures is, you know, saying, whoa, I just found out this this thing that is actually kind of common knowledge. <laughs> and, you know, the other stick figure says, you know, I don't make fun of that person. I'm like, you know, let's go see if it works. Let, I'm going to show you this, you know. And as a, as a teacher, you're teaching people stuff that you, of course, learned a long time ago, and many people learned a long time ago, but it's totally new to the students. And I think it's a bad idea to stifle that yeah. excitement of discovery. You know, so you, you, you put out an act and, you know, you're like, oh, well, what's going to happen if yeah. we do this experiment or, or we, you know, we try this thing? You know what the answer is, but the student doesn't. And the student can have that Thrilling moment of discovery, Uh, and so I I think that we, you know, as a culture, need to, you know, give people a little bit more space to to experience that and not make fun of it.
1: Boy, I couldn't agree more. Um, There's a whole culture of uh, that seems to go along with knowingness. It's so easy to shame people that we just don't agree with, of course, and if there's any hint of no, you're wrong. For actually, I don't even have to explain why. You know, I, I see social media just making no. That's you're just an idiot. Period. And and it seems to be I, I could I could make the argument that knowingness is is in part of that. It also makes me think about cognitive dissonance. You didn't you didn't address this specifically in the article, but it just makes me think. Is in some way knowingness sort of ameliorates that need for trying to solve hold those two things that are opposite or or different in my head i just don't even have to worry about that with knowingness
2: yeah sure right yeah any any evidence that is contrary to what you already believe or can no. be very <laughs> right yeah can be right well that's the thing right you yeah. you imagine it's not just as a, a belief but as something already known yeah you encounter that that bit of contrary evidence, and you you overlook it easily, or you just dismiss it or or something like that. And you know, I, I think about uh, you know Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions, uh, where in normal scientific research, you operate with a, a framework of a bunch of assumptions that have worked for years or decades or sometimes centuries. And you see an anomaly say eh, at first, well, I don't know, I'm not going to worry about that. that's just one data point but you have to so yeah you you it, it would be a bad idea to th- discard your entire presuppositions because of one data point. but when they build up, that's when you know something revolutionary perhaps is is about to happen
1: yeah which which kind of happened with the onset of behavioral economics. Like, you know, Thaler actually called his his first column anomalies, you know, where he's pointing out troubles with classic or neoclassic economic theory and, and kept finding more anomalies. <laughs> kept there, there were more problems with this rational man kind of thinking to the point where it was like, well, wait a minute, there's really something here. Now, I, I guess that there are still those who dismiss behavioral economics as, you know, just a, a silly little idea, but – but yeah, it it takes a while to get to the revolutionary idea. So one of
0: the things John that I've been kind of thinking about is, you know, all right, so um our listeners maybe trying to think about this and going, "Okay, so as much as I don't think I I, you know, participate in knowingness, I I might find myself occasionally doing that." So it, I know for Tim and me, we we definitely fall into this. And so what what are some ways that we can overcome this? Is is there any way? Or is this just so kind of basic in our human nature that it just comes about and we can't we can't do anything about it? Or, or are there things that we can try?
2: I think that there are things. Yeah. I think that knowingness
0: can be overcome.
2: And as with most things, there's a kind of balance to strike. I think, you know, one One alternative approach to dealing with the flood of information and all of the kind of potentially contrary data that comes our way is to be like, well, I'm just going to remain open minded. I'm going to take everything in and assess Mm -hmm. based on the evidence that comes before me. And I mean that that too is a kind of distortion, partly because you just can't do that.
0: I was gonna say that's wrong. It's exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I'm Ah, I'm tired of thinking about that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And and, you know, that's a thing that you hear in I don't know. I don't mean I don't know if people are still talking about it, but in, you know, sort of like rationalist kind of circles, it's like, well, we got we have to take the evidence for what it is every time. We have to go in without preconceptions. And scientists certainly don't approach their data without preconceptions. They go yeah. in with a whole theoretical framework and a whole lot of past experience. So even that approach is not even good science. So we'll nix that one off the list.
1: <laughs> right. <Yeah.
2: laughs> right, And, you know, knowingness this has this, I mean, Lear thinks ultimately possibly tragic results. His paragon of knowingness is Oedipus. You know, oh, oh, yeah. We usually think of Oedipus, that, well, I mean, it's it's come down to us that the problem with Oedipus was, well, the Oedipus complex. And Lear, in talking to a bunch, uh, it was a, a conference of psychoanalysts, says, you know, the problem with Oedipus was not his Oedipal urges, but this knowingness, the fact that the play opens And people say, hey, you know, there's this problem. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know all about that. And it's like, "Ah," but he he doesn't. (laughs) You know, he has no idea. He can't see the evidence before his very eyes because he himself, he became, I mean, King Lear is very clear. He's like, "Not, he's not really king. He's tyrant. But he became the tyrant of Thebes based on his problem-solving ability. He's like, well, I'm Oedipus, I know how to solve problems. I'm the problem-solver guy. I'm going to solve this. And I kind of already know. Um, but he can't see that he is the problem. Um, he's he's become blinded to the evidence before him. So it, it, it's hard to say exactly what the right balance is, but it's having a kind of confidence in those well-earned uh, theoretical dispositions that you have. But remaining open to contrary evidence and dissenting voices and things like that I mean, it's you know it's just a tricky balance that everyone will work out on their own
1: is skepticism is that too too strong of a word would you would you go so far as to say it's uh, that's that having a healthy mix of skepticism in your in your mix is would that be would that be good would that be healthy do you think
2: yeah, I mean, kind of, uh, yeah, like you say, healthy skepticism, yeah, yeah. you know, not like kind of Cartesian skepticism <laughs> where just everything is doubted. Yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. I am also, you know, a fan of um, the pragmatist tradition, when, and particularly Richard Rorty, uh, where Rorty advocated um, what he called ironism, so an ironic Ah. stance toward your own, your own commitments saying, you know, so it's like, okay, well, these are the things that I'm pretty, con- that I'm pretty confident in, but not allowing them to become dogmatic and remaining open to the possibility that those commitments can lead to dead ends. You know, they can, hmm. um, they can ultimately end up serving you very poorly so that you have to be a little ironic towards your own beliefs. Can
1: you give an example of that? This ironism, uh, this sounds really interesting.
2: I guess that, um, I mean, an example could possibly be, you know, say you have some kind of longstanding political commitment. okay, And over time, uh, you begin to see that political commitment you know, start to lead in directions that are, you know, no longer productive or useful to you or something like that. Okay. Or, um, I mean, it, it could be like, you may have, uh, you know, they, maybe that commitment is based on, you know, beliefs about the world mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah, like, like the kind of like rational man, uh, example and you say, ah, you know, in, in. Living in the years of my life, I look around and I see that that assumption is not entirely warranted. You know, I I wish it were true that people made decisions based on, you know, kind of rational self-interest, but they don't. They make decisions based on all kinds of things, you know, emotions or social ties or whatever it is. And, you know, you have to be open to revising that and saying, all right, well, my theory just doesn't work anymore, Uh, And you're only able to say that if you already have a certain distance from that theory. You know, if you're just a true believer, you won't even see the contrary evidence that
0: suggests your theory doesn't. Quite work.
1: So you have to, yeah.
0: It reminds me of of Annie Duke, and when we've talked with her, and she's talking about probabilistic beliefs or, or thinking. This idea that um, it, even if you believe something, you know what you consider almost a hundred percent. If if you think about that belief as I believe that ninety nine point nine percent. Then there's that little bit that keeps it apart from my identity. There's that small, small chance. And, and even just that little chance um, changes how we can then process us. So uh new information comes in that might contradict that. All right, so I revised that down to 99% now, and now a little bit more comes in, and now it's down to 96%. It's still 96%. It's a pretty big – and granted, it's not something where you hold that belief and you're actually going – all right, I'm a 96.2% as you're you're thinking it, but just that idea of being able to come in and and not have it be that this becomes part of one's identity, that there is always that element of of being able to hold something out so that that contrary that irony that is that you've mentioned I think could could play into that. I don't know if that aligns with what what that um you were saying, but it it's what came to mind for me. Yeah, and as a as an educator something that I
2: think a lot about and I've been reading about lately is how students can transform. You know, I think that the the justification for going to college is that it's a transformation it's a transformational experience. You will go in one person and leave, you know, somewhat different. But you have to be open to that transformation. And well, Not everyone is going into college. And so you have this this conundrum or this paradox where somehow in order to get, you you know, you have to figure out how to transform someone who's not open to transformation into someone who's open to transformation so that then you can transform them. And I think that, you know, maybe Rorty's kind of ironism is another way of uh addressing that paradox how do you get someone to change their mind or how do you change your mind well you kind of have to have that tiny bit of yourself that already is not a hundred percent convinced
1: yeah it's like the uh the mark twain quote about how i was so surprised that the years that i spent in college my dad got a lot smarter yeah, <laughs> you know, like you know that that as you know in this character, he wasn't modifying his own worldview. He was just surprised that you know he he didn't he wasn't taking into consideration his dad was already really smart. It, it, it was just like. <laughs> You know, all he was doing was saying, well, my dad must have gotten smarter while I was away at college, (laughs) even (laughs) even though the transformation was in him. So, even, yeah, so there, there are those, I guess, uh, I guess there are those that are just uh, not interested in updating and their own belief system. Yeah.
0: I want to talk about another article. So we've, and, and obviously we can come back to knowingness and, and different things, but you also wrote another article in the Atlantic called, uh, what chat GPT can't teach my writing students. Can you just give a quick synopsis of that for our listeners about what that was about and, um, kind of the thesis around that?
2: Yeah. The background of that essay is just the. I mean, it's fair to call it a freak out. Um, (laughs) um, You heard it here first, folks. John Um, freaks out. Not John. Um, Not just my own, but just, you know, among educators at the secondary and Uh, college level uh, with the availability of ChatGPT and its other kind of large language model competitors because you could give chat GPT a prompt and you you could just give it the prompt for your, you know, English assignment and it would return an essay that was usually not brilliant, but certainly competent. The prose was clean. It had the basic, you know, it made the basic kind of moves that we expect uh, students between like grade 10 and, you know, uh, most of college to be able to do. And, you know, the question is, well, I mean, why, well, why bother? You know, what are we doing? Why bother teaching students to write anymore if AI can do at least some of the tasks? And I, it occurred to me, well, you know, one thing that's valuable about learning to write is you learn to write for a specific audience. So you construct the person or group that you're trying to inform or persuade or amuse or whatever in your head and try to, you know, meet their needs. And that imaginative act of creating that the reader, I think, is an essential essential psychological move, not just for communication, but for our entire ethical lives. And so I think that there's, you know, learning to write is an, an ethical training, too. And the first step is, you know, imagining the person that you're trying to write to.
1: Yeah, yeah, which gets, which makes me think about all the papers that I wrote in college, I feel very disconnected from an audience other than how can I in some ways persuade my professor to give me a decent grade to to somehow yeah. demonstrate that I'm, you know, that that ultimately I felt like my professor was was sort of my reader, was my audience. Uh, but you're kind of arguing that the professor shouldn't be the audience. Right. It It's. And as as a writing
2: instructor, you know, (laughs) I tell, I'll I'll give the students, you know, their essay prompt. It's like, okay, imagine you are writing for a smart peer who's not in this class. So they haven't read what you've read. They haven't had the discussions we've had. Uh, So you're going to have to inform them. But you're going to try to, you know, persuade them according to whatever methods are persuasive, you know, uh, to someone you know about your age, but uh, that's—I'm not sure that the students buy that because, like, the fact uh, is, the reader is still me. Yeah, yeah, the reader right, is still right, right. a 47-year-old with a PhD and who is going to be grading them. Yeah. So it's—I think it's really tough to to get students to you know to to train that imagination because. You know, I I have to adopt this persona that, you know, maybe I'm just not very good at
0: doing. Well, there's an incentive for the student, right? The incentive is to write to you because you're the one who is in control of that grade that they have. And so as much as you say, write it for, you know, your your smart peer – yeah they might even try but in the back of their heads there really there's something that's kind of keep coming back but i need to make sure that that my professor you know really gets this in various different pieces right. I, the the interesting piece on this for me was this idea that you know learning how to write teaches you Certain things about yourself, but but also about you know the way you think and and other you know and how others think and being able to put yourself in their shoes and also how you know all of those factors. Um, and for some weird reason, Tim's heard me talk about this analogy for on others, but it, it kind of goes back um, uh, in um, uh, Apocalypse Now, right? Um, Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, they did a, a documentary called The Heart of Darkness, and and in that. Francis Ford Coppola is having this conversation with Dennis Hopper who is obviously high as a kite and is just like you know dude you know just uh, doing the whole thing and and um, Francis Ford Coppola is going you need to learn your le- your words you need to learn the script and he you know and, and Dennis Hopper goes but but Brando you know ad-libs all the time and and Francis Ford Coppola goes he says but But he knows the script. He knows what he's supposed to say. And he is ad-libbing from that knowledge. And you don't know what you're saying. (laughs) And you're just ad-libbing. And I'm I'm paraphrasing that, of course. And, And I don't know why this reminds me of this. But it's kind of like you need to understand how to write and how you do that. And, and then you know all right chap GPT, if I, you need to use it or whatever that's that's fine and in whatever you do but you need to have that basic understanding first before any of this other stuff can come through and I don't know if that makes any kind of logical sense or if I'm just off on my little tangent which I often am so
2: yeah it does make sense I mean the it, it's all it's all about the moral imagination and yeah it's something that actors have to do all the time they have to imagine their way into another person's existence perhaps a fictional person perhaps a real person and they have to you know portray that in some way and i think that we do that all the time mm. Uh, I think that we're always you know you from something like driving in your car I mean this is kind of I don't know like this is like theory of mind um, yeah. you know, listeners can mentally correct me if I'm wrong uh about this, but yeah you you're you're driving in your car and you're like, you know what is this person doing? you have to be like, okay you you imagine yourself in their car doing these things like, oh okay, they're trying to merge or they're trying to go across two lanes or you know, who knows, something like that. Um, I I think that we, that's to me, uh, a really fundamental part of the moral life. And it's something that I I think is actually becoming more important to our moral lives uh, in the 21st century.
1: Wow. God, I feel like that was just Like there's no follow up to that. That was just so beautifully said. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Like I'm a little bit stopped in my tracks as I loved it. I do. Uh, Thank you for that, John. Yeah, sure. But uh, what you know, we we talked a little bit about before we started recording. Uh, You mentioned that you've got some stuff in the works. Can you can you share a little bit with the with the Groovers as to what what's on John Mallesic's mind? Sure.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's still more to be said about burnout. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've written much about burnout lately, but I, I probably will. And I've been doing some speaking about burnout primarily to academic audiences. But beyond that, I over the last few years, there's been this this undercurrent in my thinking and my writing about exactly this question of how we relate to people that we imagine. Mm. You know, I wrote an essay a few years ago about regret as a, a, a relationship between you and your past self. Of course, your past self is gone, doesn't exist, but you have to recreate that person in order to regret and come to terms with that. I wrote an essay about trying to think my way into... Uh, my father's final thoughts mm. uh, on wow. his deathbed. Wow. Um, I wasn't with him at the time, and, you know, my kind of access to his mind was uh, this apparent selfie that he took, It was uh, this shocking discovery on his phone uh, that he took the day before he died. And, you know, there I'm trying to reconstruct, you know, my father's mind. Uh, and then, yeah, at the end of that Atlantic piece, I mention how the big ethical challenges of our century involve how we relate to people who we can often only imagine so you think about climate change our actions now affect people who don't exist yet uh or you know climate refugees who who perhaps have been born but Ah, uh, we have to imagine. Well, what are what are their desires? What are they? Uh, what are their circumstances? Or um, artificial intelligences? Or non-human animals? Um, you know, what does this this species? Um, you know, what how how can I relate to that? I have to imagine a state of mind there. Uh, and so, I think that that's kind of what I want to give more thought to and that can sort of get back into some of my previous academic interest in theology and uh and and stuff like that
1: maybe a slightly more more philosophical bent right yeah yeah, yeah for sure i love that
0: it's fascinating cuz you know and again obviously you put a lot of work into this already a lot of thought into it already and um you know just in you talking about that uh, the the, the hardship of having to be able to do that is, is already apparent, right? I mean, it, it, we all bring our own past, our own, you know, systems of belief that we've already talked about this knowingness idea and, and to really be able to have that empathy to sit and to be in somebody else's shoes or in another, even beyond somebody else's shoes into something, as you said, animal or AI. Uh, I just. Gosh, that that seems like it's a it's a task that uh, seems pretty Herculean to to me almost to a degree.
2: Yeah, and you you sometimes hear people dismiss others' actions by saying, "Oh, you know, that's just projection," or "You know, you're yeah. making this about yourself," or something like that. And sometimes, you know, what else do we have to go on? Yeah, you know, if we have no idea what someone else's desires are.
0: We got to think, well, what would my desires be in that
2: circumstance? And maybe that's the best we can do.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that I am I'm looking forward to whatever comes yes. out of this because this will okay. <laughs> be very exciting. So
1: and we, we hope you'll come back and talk about, about about that project when when it comes to fruition. But sure, right, yeah, I'd love to. But right now we do have to get back to music and we need to <laughs>
0: we, we, we never started on music too, oh, so we can't shoot, get shoot, back shoot. to music. Okay. You gotta, I was, I was yeah.
1: hoping you would just play along with that. <laughs> um john let's imagine that you're stranded on a desert island for a year you get to take two musical artists catalogs with you the whole catalog everything that they've ever created recorded whatever with you uh but you only get two artists which two would you take
2: wow uh i mean one you know one that jumps to mind and we talked about him last time is neil young partly because his catalog is so vast, large uh, diverse it would take yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would probably not quickly get bored. And I think that you know another interesting aspect of that is like because his career has been so long, you know, I can sort of, if I'm on this desert island for a long time, I can kind of age along <laughs> with
1: Neil. Oh, uh, interesting. That. That's I kind do of cool. Like yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a novel thought. Okay. Who else? Yeah, the other one. Oh
2: my gosh. This is tough. Um I'm trying to think about, yeah, artists that I find, you know, just kind of endlessly re-listenable. I don't know I don't know if I mean I I'll just say like another artist who I like a lot and I think that there are you know th- there's a lot of re-listenability. although the problem is the catalog is not that big it's Fiona Apple oh. um who you know puts out an album every like 8 years or so get right. that and yeah. oh. and you know I I don't know I mean I just I think that the you know the lyrics uh, and you know her songwriting would yeah. give me a kind of you know maybe slanted perspective on my environment that I would really need uh, on that <laughs> <Really>? desert island. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> <So. laughs>
1: interesting, yeah. That it's it's so interesting. I I think that's a really cool set of picks. They're so uh, we've asked this of several guests and oftentimes they're really diversity, you know, seeking, they, they want to mm-hmm. have a classical or, or, and a jazz artist or a jazz artist and a pop artist or something, you know, just to really sort of, in, you know, this is like, okay, if I'm picking my candy bars at the beginning of the week for what I'm going to have throughout the week, I'm going to choose different candy bars. But in reality, if I pick one a day, I pick the same damn candy, candy bar. Um, and I, I like your rationale, I, I, I like I like the aging along with Neil. that's that, that's a really mm-hmm. cool, cool way of thinking about it. But I mean
0: there, there are those artists who we have kind of that we've we've seen them from when they were very young, um, aging through you know their 20s to their middle age into you know, later years in life that are still, producing new works. And, and it is interesting sometimes, I think, to, to watch that progression, both from a musical style and kind of uh, technicality, but also in their lyrics, particularly if they are, you know, like Neil is, is very, um, you know, purposeful in, in thinking through the lyrics that he writes. And so the topics that he wrote about and how he wrote about them as a, is a 18 19 20 you know early 20s versus somebody in their 60s and 70s i think is a a really nice just position of of kind of looking at at our world and thinking about things so i fully support that
1: um and i love fiona apple so there you go john molessek thank you so much for being a guest on behavioral groups again yeah thank you so much for having me
0: Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned with our discussion with John, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our all-knowing brains.
1: Yeah, all-knowing and already knowing. <laughs> but we knew that. We knew you knew
0: that I was going to say all-knowing. Right? That's like I just give it. I think everybody knew that. <laughs> <laughs> it is this uh, concept of knowingness, which I absolutely Enjoy and love Mm -hmm. because I see not only others doing it very easily, but once John started talking about it, I'm realizing, oh, I do that as well. It's 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 not it's not uh not immune to my my own way of thinking. It's like, oh, I I, I knew that. I knew that was gonna happen. Yeah.
1: How many times have you been in the meeting and someone in the meeting says well what we discovered was this and somebody says well didn't we already know that and you're kind of going well of course we already knew that didn't we already know that (laughs) everybody knew that
0: it's funny because i have a client right now i'm working with and we're putting together uh we're putting together a survey and yeah we kind of know that this one question what the answer is going to be but to that degree he's like why do we have this question in here we know what everybody's going to say and i go but we don't. Yes. We assume we That's... know what everybody is going to say. And, yeah, it probably will turn that out. But let's make sure. Let's not just guess about this. Bravo, Dr.
1: Nelson. Bravo.
0: <laughs> Lord knows if I'll still get it in or not because <laughs> I haven't gone back and, and had that. But that is a. it's one of those pieces. And knowingness isn't necessarily that. But knowingness is more about that idea of oh we you said something and it's like yeah i knew that you know this idea but i think what was interesting for me is that it almost comes across as we have to we have to state that we know it because otherwise we have a perception that people are going to think we're dumb yeah we're not knowledgeable and this idea of not knowing means that you're stupid when in fact i think not knowing is one of the best things that we can know about ourselves is because that way it helps us to say ah this is all these new things that i can i can now learn and and build into you know who i am
1: it also for me connects to the google effect this idea that whenever we want to clear up a particular fact we just go to google Ask Google and Google gives us the answer back. And oftentimes in my mind, there's this, oh yeah, I I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to tweak that answer just a little bit, but I, I knew that already. <laughs> and, and I think that this is, um, this is a really good thing to be aware of. This is a really important thing for us to keep an eye on so that we don't lose sight of having sort of a learning mindset. And yeah. uh, have an openness to learning new things, to revising our own opinions on things. Oh, wow! Yes. If we if we already have this this sense of I I know that, it removes any sense of curiosity. And again, I go back to Annie Duke. I I
0: don't we we ought to just pay her royalty because I go <laughs> back to her every single time. It feels like this idea though of having that. Um, thinking in bets that, that probability perspective yeah. when you're thinking about something as opposed to being a hundred percent certain. I'm eh, 85, 90% certain on this. And that way, when that new information comes in, I don't have to go, I knew that and it's there, but I can go, Oh, that's new. Now I can adjust my, my idea of, am I 70% certain now or am I 90% certain? Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, and John talked a little bit about maintaining healthy skepticism as well, ah. and that's like uh, this comes up all the time. Like some of the best behavioral scientists, uh, let's just start with Kahneman and Tversky, were the oh, one wow. they question the man, right? <laughs> right? They question the man. They question the man, and I think that uh, having a healthy sense of uh, skepticism can lead us to being a little less dogmatic. I think that, yeah. you know, could at least there's that possibility.
0: But and, and we talked about this, too, but staying open minded is exhausting.
1: Oh, right? yes, yes,
0: that's right. <laughs> I mean, that's the hard part about this, because we yeah. all want to have that sense of being open minded and considering all the options and various different pieces. But sometimes you just have to satisfy. Right. You got to do, right. you know, some of this element of saying, nope. This is this is the belief already, and and I don't need to keep re-examining that. But there is that element of having that healthy skepticism that I think is really important as we move forward, and and the idea of making sure we're not being dogmatic in those things that we hold as truths. Yeah. So,
1: is there anything that you wanted to say about communication? Specifically because we did spend a little time on communication. Just the, this
0: idea, I was really fascinated by John's take that chat GPT won't become a substitute for writers in the same way because chat GPT doesn't have empathy. Yeah. And I thought that was an interesting twist, right? He said, you can create the visual image with like a AI kind of piece. But again, you know, is that, going to be the same as a piece of writing that's supposed to touch on empathy. And again, I, you know, at this point and in the immediate future, I agree with him. I just, I'm interested to see where technology is gonna take us. And what that means for communication, because pretty soon our jobs are going to be gone here, Tim. We're going to have two automated two bot. bots that are <laughs> going to be. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, here we are talking with John Molisek. Uh, yeah, <sighs> I don't
1: know, but yeah. The other s- side about the importance of of writing in communication is that it helps crystallize our thinking. So yeah. That It helps us actually articulate our thoughts so it's not just random blah 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 that when we start <laughs> writing it becomes a little less random blah 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 and that's, so we should that's write out some of the most stuff
0: that we do here because uh, we just are random blah blah blah
1: overrated overrated <laughs> what else Mr. Hoolhan what else could we just spend just a minute on moral imagination? Uh, we can imagine it. Sure. John talked about this at the end. He talked, gave the example of the, what it's like to be thinking about someone else having this moral imagination or as is, is he, he kind of uh, parallel to theory of mind. Right. Yeah. And, when he gave the example of driving a car and you think that you know that's when someone's you're driving down the road and someone's coming in from the right and you think, well, they're gonna they're gonna they need to merge. So my theory of mind or my moral imagination suggests, oh, they need to merge, so I'm gonna allow them in or, or whatever. We 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 do that automatically. But then he went a step further and just kind of teed up this idea about what would it be like to think about our actions for people who haven't even been born yet. Yeah, And that was kind of a, that was just a cool question that got me thinking about what would it be like for me to talk to my great, 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 great grandchild a hundred years from now? What would that couple hundred years from now? Okay. 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 However, however many. (laughs) Do the math. Do (laughs) Do the math. How, what would that conversation be like? Like what, if we know that context matters. Context is a big part of how our world works. What would I have to impart to somebody 100 or 200 years from now that is my lineage that I share DNA with that could either help them along their way or help them navigate their life? Um, I just think it's an it's a interesting idea. There's,
0: there's all that work on uh, temporal discounting. And this idea that we're so now focused as opposed to future focused. And I know there's been that research that um, reimagines our pictures and images so that we age. And so yeah. that changes our, our perception. But I love this little game, mind game that you can play about what is the conversation that you would have.
1: Let's, call it, a, let's call it a thought experiment. It sounds a better. thought experiment.
0: Okay. <laughs> this thought experiment of having a conversation with a great-great-grandchild, some such in some future time frame, And there's a piece of this, too, that you can reverse that and go and say, what would it also be like to have yeah. the conversation with your great-great-great-great-grandfather or grandmother and yeah. what wisdom can they impart to you? And what is that continuation? And it's so interesting in the these times, and I, I can't remember who we talked about this with, but uh, this idea that you look back at history and if you could have plunked somebody from 1200 AD and put them into 1600 AD and they would fit pretty well into that world, not a ton of change even from 16 to 17 17 to 18 all right you're getting a little different all of a sudden you're getting machines and different things but then you go from like the 1890s up until you know today and radically different
1: world radic
0: 1850s right you know to today it's a vastly different world and i can only imagine that the world is going to go through this in the same same level probably as is kind of currently happening. And that to me is just like, we can't even imagine what that grandchild, great-great-grandchild is going to be in. And then just the idea of, again, like the moral indignation that we have on slavery today, you know, back in 1800s, you know, for a vast large portion of the United States and for maybe the world, that wasn't an issue that right. didn't, there wasn't any part. Granted, there were people that had that component. But and we look back on those people saying, how could you be how, how could you not know this? And yet, what is the things that we won't even know um, of that our grand, great grandchildren will think about us?
1: Yeah. And yet we read Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, uh, yeah. Aristotle, Hume. You know, we read Things that were written 200, 500, 2000 years ago, what is it that we might have to say that would be relevant and meaningful to to some of those future generations?
0: What are those human universals that regardless of the technology uh, and societal kind of components around us are going to be true?
1: Oh, see, you, you often say you're not so philosophical, but damn it, you are, you're pretty damn philosophical. (laughs) I talk the talk, Tim,
0: I, 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 you know, but then it just hurts my brain. So then I quit (laughs) because it hurts, man. It hurts to think about these things. There's an interesting aspect of that though, because thinking hard about these answers that are these questions that don't really have solid answers i think a lot of philosophy is there are some pieces that you can look at elements but a lot of the philosophical questions are almost these things that are unknown unknowable right Uh, essence of life um you know those types of things and it's hard you you because you can have an opinion and if you're open-minded um like we are Right. And you're not dogmatic about, well, meaning of life is 43 and here we go. And this is how it is. Then you have to have that open in it and it's exhausting and it's tiring and makes my head hurt. So, okay, agreed. All right. Well, I think. I've philosophized enough. Is that even a word? I philosophize? I can't it. All right. Like that. I think that wraps up the topics <laughs> okay. that we wanted to groove on. Let's just, <laughs> just cut it off before I dig a deeper hole. All
1: yeah. right. So uh, listeners, we hope that you give some consideration to John's comments and maybe even our grooving ideas about knowingness and that it helps you go out this week and to find your groove.